I don't know if anyone gets the, the register. There was an article on Thursday about a, a um, latest survey by the Pew Analysis Company about um, religion in America and belief in God in America. It was interesting. It was fascinating. Whenever I see an article like that, I enjoy reading it and seeing what um, they have to say, what the world's view of things are. And for the first time in history, in the history of the United States, I should say, the U.S. does not have a Protestant majority. The Protestant majority in the U.S. fell below 50%. And significantly enough where it's beyond the margin of error, and so that they know it's below 50%. And they were trying to talk through, well, what are some of the reasons for that? And one of the things they said, among the reasons for the change, a spike in the number of American adults who say they have no religion. And they, they talk about, well, does that mean they believe in God? Do they not believe in God? And there's a rise in the number of people that claim to be atheists who believe in no God. There's also a rise in people who say they believe in God, but... And, and, and pray and consider themselves spiritual, but don't go to church and aren't affiliated with any church and are not religious. Some of the reasons they gave were possibly the spread of secularism. Um, as the population ages, the younger generation has no problem not being affiliated with a church. It used to be there was a stigma with not being affiliated with a religion and not being affiliated with the church, and now there's no stigma to that, so why go? And, and interesting statistics that really point to where our culture is with God, with a view of God. And there's all kinds of reasons, and we could talk all, all morning about different reasons, but one of the reasons, and one of many reasons, I believe, is we have sacrificed who God is on the altar of making Him attractive and of making him attractive to me and what I want and what I think he should be. And we've sacrificed the awesomeness of God. We've sacrificed the greatness and the holiness and the righteousness of God. And as soon as we lower God to our level, as soon as we make him something I can understand and and someone that exists simply for my benefit, we now take away worship and we take away faith. And we take away the depth of what it means to walk with God Almighty. And what it means to have God Almighty reveal through His holiness our lack of holiness and draw us to Himself. So I believe that as we continue to talk through the attributes of God, more than ever, it's important that we know what we believe. That we have a biblical view of God and and, and a high view of God and not a low common view of God. Last week we talked about the incomprehensibility of God, that we're unable to fully or exhaustively understand God. But yet He's knowable, and we talked about the knowability of God. And this week we want to come to to two more attributes that are tied together that deal with who God is and how, how He created all things, but yet He Himself is not created. He is uncreated. And does God need us? Answering that question, does He need you and I? Does He have gaps in who He is that somehow we can fill in and meet those needs? Is He dependent on us or are we dependent on Him? And we've had a lot of new babies born in our congregation in the last two years. Amen. Amen. <laughs> babies are pretty dependent, aren't they? 
They, they are, they are dependent and, and they, they have a, a birthday. We celebrate when they're born, the start of their, their life outside of the womb, their start of their life with their family. And we celebrate that start of life and we know that they're dependent and we meet their needs. And, and throughout life, we teach them to be on their own and we teach them how to function as adults. But it's amazing. My kids are, are going, we're going through birthday season right now and all our birthdays are within a month or two of each other. And this year, birthdays mean that they've let me know that they now can do anything I can do. <laughs> and then I let them try. They're like, Dad, I need you. But isn't that true of our, our psyche of who we are that we strive to do things on our own? We, we strive to be self-sufficient we, we want to be little gods. I don't know how else to put that. But, and throughout all the attributes, as I look at sin and what Satan has done, so many of them come back to, we want to be little gods. We want to have that attribute for ourselves. But in reality, there is only one uncaused God. There is only one complete God without need. Only one uncaused being. Only one complete being. And so this morning we go there. This morning we look at who God is. First attribute on, on one side of your notes, and, and there's two sides of your notes. The first side is self, the self-existence of God. The second side is the self-sufficiency of God. And these two work together to help us understand that God has no cause, but is the cause of all things. And He has no need, but we depend on Him for all things. Self-existence. We put a definition there. God is the only uncaused and uncreated being. God is the only uncaused and uncreated being and has always existed with life from Himself. He is not dependent for being or essence on any source outside of Himself. And we'll break that down in a, in a minute and look at the verses that show us the different parts of that. But the idea is He is the uncaused cause. There has never been a beginning to God. God has no birthday. Because God always has been. God always has been. And so, but yet at the same time, He causes all other things to be. And so He's uncreated without origin, existing with life completely from Himself. We can't say that of ourselves. We have birthdays. We celebrate birthdays. Whole bunch at 39. And, and, we have origin, and we know that, but God does not. So there's some things as we explore what self-existence is that help us understand what we mean by this and why this is important. The first, as we explored, is God eternally existed before all things in time. God eternally existed before all things in time. Turn to the very first verse of your Bible. Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1. You probably know this verse. It's one of the ones that you memorize early on. But the significance of how God's Word begins is huge. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And we see from the start a statement of fact about God that at the beginning of time, God creates all things, and He creates time, but He already existed. Because He is uncreated. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 starts in, in a similar way, but ties in the incarnation and who Jesus Christ is when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3 goes parallels the second half of Genesis 1.1. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through Him and by Him. Without Him, not anything was made. And so you have a distinction here between God Almighty who is uncreated, and you have everything else, including us, that is created at His will and for His pleasure. So when we think of God's self-existence, God eternally existed before all things in time. That is how He is able to create all things in time. Turn to Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. And the references we've put in your notes so you can go back and study, but I really want to look some of these up and a little bit of a sword drill this morning. Psalm 90, verse 2. Again, a statement of God's existence before time, before creation. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Amen. Amen? God exists before all created things. And so when we say He's self-existent, That means He had no beginning. Think about that. He had no beginning. Second thing to explore about self-existence. God's life and existence is completely within Himself and has no external source. God's life and existence is completely within Himself and has no external source. When we look up and we see the lights on, for instance, the light bulbs are all on and and it's a good thing and I shouldn't have just looked at them. Um, What can we we assume? Is there a source to their light? Yes, what's the source? Electricity. Without electricity, there is no light. Now, you could say, well, they could have batteries. Well, that's a form of electricity. And so there's, there's, when we look at things, we think automatically there's a source. There's a reason why this works. With God, there is no external source for His life. It is completely within Himself. He doesn't need someone to turn on the electricity so He can be more God-like. He is fully and completely God. John 5.26 Turn over there. John 5.26 We see a statement of God's life within Himself. We read, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And the key phrase in both halves of that verse are in Himself. What does that mean? And to be in Himself, to have life in Himself, means He relies on nothing else. That would be life from something else. And this is a statement of source for life that He, His being, who He is, is the source of His life. 
Again, Genesis 1.1 and John 1, 1-3 that we, we looked at. He created all things. Nothing created Him. He is the source of all life. He's the source of all life. Last week we, we started looking at Exodus 3, 14 and 15. And it wasn't going to be the last time we look at it because it's a, a, a revealing statement where God reveals Himself to Moses and then to the, the children of Israel. And if you turn over to there, Exodus 3, 14 and 15. We set the story up last week. But this again helps us understand that God's life is completely within Himself with no external source. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And if you remember from our discussion last week, I am, the wording there is from the verb to be. And it's an active verb that says, I exist, but also I bring all things to be. I am and I cause to be. His essence of being, His life, is. It is not dependent. It is. Verse 15, as you look at Exodus 3 there, I want to point out a a word there that will help us understand so much of the Old Testament and read it differently, I believe. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And do you see the name, the Lord? How it's in in all caps, a large cap and then small caps. Whenever you see that in your Old Testament, that's the word Yahweh. Yahweh. And there's debate about whether or not we should use the word Yahweh, but Yahweh is the name that God gives for who He is. It is also from the verb to be. And so whenever we see the Lord, and, and we think of that sometimes as a title, oh, He's Lord over my life. And, and He is, and, and there's other verses that talk specifically to that. But when we see this form of the word, we should think Yahweh, I am, and I cause to be. Try reading your Old Testament sometime, and as you read the over a thousand references to Yahweh, each time you see that, instead of saying the Lord, Try saying the the I am and the I cause to be. And see if you don't read your Old Testament differently. Because every time God uses this title, He is reminding the children of Israel and us through His Word that I am self-existent. I need nothing. I am uncaused. Now that's hard for us to, to understand. It's hard for us to think of any sequence of events without a cause. Because every sequence of events that we know of in in our finite universe has a cause that precedes it. And we we could delve into that argument, but we understand that even from from, uh, childhood. My kids are always asking, well, where did that come from? Well, where did that come from? Where did that traffic signal come from? Something had to have caused it. Where did this car come from? Where did I come from? Something had to have caused that. And so we, we, we think of origin and we think of a sequence of events. But if we go back, there has to be a starting point. There has to be a first cause. And the first cause is from the uncaused one. 
Think about that. The very fact that we can see a sequence to events should point us back to an infinite God that exists outside of time that is able to start things off and cause things. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. The I am, the I cause to be, has sent me to you. Wow. Wow. God's life and existence is completely within Himself and has no external source. Third thing as we explore what it means to be self-existent, for God to be self-existent, is God created all things. God created all things out of nothing, ex nihilo, that by His Word, all things came to be. And this is the I am and I cause to be. And if He is self-existent and uncaused and uncreated, and He is the only uncaused one, then that brings us to understand Him as the Creator. And God's Word over and over and over brings us to Him as Creator. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. I'll read this out of the book we just studied. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And we see a God who exists outside of His creation, who creates at His desire a creation that will reveal His glory. Because all things were created through Him as Creator and for Him for His purposes. He alone is self-existent. In Isaiah 44, 6, we read, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Besides me, there is no God. God is self-existent alone. And so we, we, th- this just scratches the surface of the self-existence of God. But He is. He causes all things to be. He is before all things. All things were created by Him and for Him. Tozer writes, I am. I was never created. I was never made. I made you. I made you for my love. I made you to worship, honor, and glorify me. But you turned away from me. You have put yourself on the throne. That is sin. And we see Tozer reflecting on the self-existence of God, but then coming to a point of what do we do with this? What is our response? Because as we deny the self-existence of God, as we deny the Creator God, we sin and we step out against Him in rebellion. And so what should our response be? What are the implications that come from the self-existence of God. And I have two in your notes there. The first is we serve the living God. We serve the living God, Yahweh. The I am and I cause to be, who existed before us and will exist for all eternity. 
And as we think about this, the self-existent God who completely is cont- contains life in himself, that means he is alive and is able to stay alive because he is not dependent on anything or anyone else. We can't kill God. And as odd as that sounds, you have Nietzsche who, who back in 1883 made the statement, God is dead. His full statement is, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And he wasn't talking a literal killing of God, but he was saying that because of our enlightenment, because we understand more now, the need for God is gone. An understanding of God is gone. And he says, how shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned and has bled to death under our knives. He goes on to say, Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? And that's where he was going with it. Don't we have to become gods, little g, little gods, to prove that we don't have a need for God and we are self-existent and self-sufficient? I saw one poster that summed that up beautifully had two two statements god is dead nietzsche 1883 nietzsche is dead god 1900 and god still lives one was true one was not we serve a living god he is alive he is uncaused which means he is not dependent on anything to stay alive But it also means as the only uncaused one and as the creator of all things, He is the source of all life. He is the source of all life. There is salvation in no other. Second implication there is we serve the living God, Yahweh. First one was we serve the living God, Yahweh. This one is we serve the living God, Yahweh. See, the act of creating implies certain things. It implies a responsibility of the created being to the Creator. It also implies the sovereignty of the Creator. In Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, You are our Father, we are the clay, and You are the potter. We are all the work of Your hand. And we see the clay and potter metaphor throughout Scripture that God is the potter and He's forming the clay to His desire. He's creating out of the clay. And turn with me to Romans chapter 9 and let's see what implications that has that God is the Creator. Romans 9 verse 20. Romans 9 verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And Paul here is coming back to Isaiah's metaphor of the clay and the potter, and he's saying, does the clay, does the one that is formed or molded have the right to say to the Creator, what are you doing? We see this elsewhere in Scripture. And Paul is saying, no. 
And catch verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay? And he's asking it as a rhetorical question to make them think. And his point is the potter has the right and authority over the clay. God is self-existent, not created. Which means he is not beholden to anyone else. He does not owe anyone anything. He does not have a responsibility to be under anyone else because he is not created. But for everything that is created, as we look at Paul and the clay and, and, and throughout Scripture, we have a responsibility to our Creator. I believe this is one of the reasons why there's such a push for evolution. Because if we can deny that we are created, then we can deny that we have a responsibility to God Almighty. And we can kill God in our own twisted sense. Not, not literally. We can kill our need for God in our own heads. See, when we sin, we set ourselves on the throne. And we deny the creator-created relationship. The self-existent, uncreated creator and his authority over us. Turn to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, verse 12. And we see the prophet Isaiah discussing the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan. Keep in mind, Lucifer is a created being by God Almighty, by the uncreated one. And in Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from the heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, who lay, you who laid the nations low! You said in your heart, and catch, catch where the beginning of his fall was, his sin, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I want to be self-existent. I want to be above the Creator. I am God. Or like God. And we all fall the same way when we think we, we don't have a responsibility to the Creator. When we think we don't have to follow what the potter wants for the clay. When we think we know best. When we disobey because we want what we want. We are denying all of the implications of the self-existence, the, the uncreated God that created all things, the great I am. Corresponding with God's self-existence is a self-sufficiency. And the two go hand in hand. Much of what we said applies to self-sufficiency as well. But if God is self-existent, if He has all life within Himself, then He has no need for anyone else. 
See how they correlate? And self-sufficiency, the definition we have there is God is complete and does not need any person or thing outside of Himself for anything as there is nothing He needs or ever will need. Let me repeat that. God is complete and does not need any person or thing outside of Himself for anything outside of Himself for anything. There is nothing He needs or ever will need. There are no gaps in God. There are no holes that need to be filled. There are no things that somehow need to meet His needs. All of His needs are met within Himself. Didn't really care for the movie, but one part of it that I like is Rocky. I'm sorry, I know some of you are big Rocky fans. (laughs) Sorry, sir. (laughs) And at one point, Rocky said to, 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 to Adrian... He says, this is me. I have gaps. This is you. You have gaps. Together, no gaps. This is God. No gaps. No need for anyone else. No need for anything else. Now, we we have to compare this with all of his attributes because that does not mean he's aloof and indifferent and somehow doesn't care about us because by his choice, by his goodwill and his desire, he has chosen to be in relationship with us. But not out of his need. Two key passages we want to look at. The first is Acts 17, 22 through 25. If you turn there. Acts 17, 22 through 25. And Paul is speaking here at Mars Hill. And he's bringing them to know what they would consider their unknown God. And he's using that to reveal who God Almighty is, the one and only true God. In Acts 17, I'd like to start at verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. But very religious doesn't cut it. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What a marvelous example of taking the situation and finding a way to share the gospel. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He cannot be contained by man. He cannot be controlled by man. With their temples, they could control their gods. But catch verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and All things or everything. And so Paul, as he's he's helping them understand the true God, says not only you can't control Him, you can't contain Him, but He's not served by human hands because He doesn't need anything. No gaps. And Paul goes on with sense, a connecting word that gives us a reason since He Himself gives to all mankind three things, life and breath, and just in case that wasn't enough, everything. 
God doesn't need to receive anything, but he gives everything. That is the God we serve. They didn't understand that. To, to them, in, in their way of thinking, God was in everything and part of everything. And, and they, they were a pantheistic culture in, in this area that believed in many gods that were part of everything. And, and Paul is saying, no, no, God isn't part of everything. He has no need. He is over everything. And as such, there is only one true God. The self-existent, self-sufficient God, Yahweh. We already read John 5.26 For as the Father has life in Himself so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. The verse also points to self-sufficiency because He is sufficient in Himself for life and for everything. And so some observations, some implications of self-sufficiency. The first, God has always been and will always be complete and without need. Out of the Acts 17 passage. God has also always been and will always be complete without need. He is not served by human hands. He does not need anything. He gives all things. And the thing about giving all things that assumes you have all things. Right? Vicki, if you come to me and ask for a glass of water and I have half a glass of water, how much can I give you? Half a glass. I can pour as much as I want, but you're only getting half a glass. And so for God to give all things, that means He has all things to give. He is self-sufficient. There's some verses there I mentioned that you can look up about, well, then why creation? Why did God bother? And it comes to His love and His desire to have creation display His glory. Not add to His glory, but display His glory that He has always had. In Isaiah 43.7, we read, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Second implication, nothing is necessary to God. He does not rely on anything. And we're speaking of need here when we talk about necessary. We need things to live, right? We need air. We don't live long without air. We need water. We need food. These things are so second nature to us that we don't even think of them as needs. They just are there. But they are needs. God needs no water, no air, no food. He needs nothing to exist. He is not dependent on anything except Himself. The concept of necessary is wholly foreign to Him. In Psalm 50, verse 12. Last passage to turn to. Go ahead and turn there. Psalm 50, verse 12. It's one of those passages that I think I, I can read and without context just doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. But with context, it's a powerful passage to, to, to talk to God's needs and whether or not we meet His needs or He meets our needs. Psalm 50, verse 12 we have to understand that, that right before this, God is proclaiming that He is judge. And He says, it's not that you're not sacrificing enough, you're sacrificing all the time. It's that the purpose of your sacrifices isn't right. And that's why I'm upset. See, what, 
what people around the, the nation of Israel believed and what other religions believed is somehow when you sacrificed, you were feeding your God. And if you got your God satisfied and full enough, then your God would do what you wanted. Do you see what happens if God has needs and is reliant on us for needs? We now become the potter. We can control him. Okay, so, so that's the culture around them, the spiritual culture that God says this, starting in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And he's referring to this, this idea that somehow by sacrificing, we fill God up. Verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. He's saying, don't sacrifice me to me because you think that you're going to fill me up. In verse 14, sacrifice to me because you're thankful out of gratitude for what I do for you. You can't fill my need but I can meet every one of yours. Nothing is necessary to God. Even relationships. All of God's relationships are voluntary, not necessary. And I believe that makes them more powerful. The fact that He would choose us as His own and adopt us as His sons and daughters, not because He needed us, but because He wanted us, it's a huge difference. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He wants that relationship with you. And and that is why you have it. He wants relationship with all, but those that come to Him have that relationship as a father to a son or daughter by His good pleasure. Third observation, nothing can be added to God, yet we can glorify Him and bring Him joy. Nothing can be added to God. No gaps. Yet we can glorify Him and bring Him joy. And this isn't adding glory to Him. It is proclaiming the glory He already has. In John 17.5, And now, Father, Jesus is speaking, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. God always has glory. He always has had glory. We don't add to it. We declare it. There's so many more verses we could read on that. But praise God, He allows us to bring joy to His heart. He delights in us. Not out of need, but out of choice. And the last observation there about self-sufficiency, God is indebted to no one because He does not gain from us or need us. We've sort of already talked about this, but if He doesn't need us, if we don't add anything to Him, then there is no indebtedness to us. We don't get to switch the roles and say, ha, God owes me. Because I am such a great servant for Him. And without me, there would be no ministry. No, that's that's switching the roles. We don't add to God. We don't fill in His gaps. Romans 11 and Job 41 both say this, 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? We don't add to Him. We don't give to Him a gift. We give to Him our responsibility as the created ones. What should our response be? God is self-sufficient. He has no need. Nothing we do adds to Him. He does not lack anything. Praise God. The first response is a humble submission to the King. Humble submission to the King. God doesn't need us. We need Him and owe Him our service. God wrote to the church at Laodicea, he hammered them because they were rich and had plenty and did not need God. We need to revel in the fact that we need God. Revel in it. Proclaim it. Cherish the fact that we need God. Because to not do that is to proclaim our own self-sufficiency, which we are not. Humble submission to the King. Finally, the last thing, just think about this one. The only one qualified to meet needs fully is the one who has no needs of his own. The only one qualified to meet needs fully is the one who has no needs of his own. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours, because they've poured out their support for Paul, and, and they, they're struggling. It says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory, in Christ Jesus. It's the water example. The only one that can meet fully meet our needs is the one who has no need. Susie and I were sitting at lunch earlier this week talking about self-sufficiency and how that applies to marriage. And, and we were just thinking through so many times we expect our spouse or we expect a friend to meet all of our needs. And, and we put them on this this expectation pedestal that if they don't, they have failed us. Well, they have gaps. They have needs. The only one that can fully meet our needs is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just think about where that leads us. Think about all the things we use to try to meet our needs. It may be people. It may be things. It may be addictions. And all of that is pointing to trying to be self-sufficient instead of God-sufficient. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to please our spouse. We shouldn't try to meet our needs because we are acting as conduits of the Lord Almighty and not out of our own power. But ultimately, it is God who meets our needs. Turn to Him. Trust Him. Rely on Him. The uncaused, the complete one. Lord God, our Father, I can't even read these verses without just being totally and completely in awe of You and amazed at how great You are and amazed at Your creative power, at Your infinite life. And Lord, we come to You as Your servants as your created ones, and trust your ways and your plans.
Enlarge our minds with who you are. In Jesus' name.